You are listening to Training Our Minds to Think God's Thoughts After Him, a podcast by Pastor Ben Bessett. Taking a look at unconditional election. So we have the acronym TULIP, total depravity. Second comes unconditional election, and it's defined for us well in the Canons of Dort from 1619, Article 7 on unconditional election. Canons of Dort state, Before the foundation of the world, by sheer grace, according to the free good pleasure of his will, he chose in Christ to salvation a definite number of particular people out of the entire human race which had fallen by its own fault from its original innocence into sin and ruin. The chosen were neither better nor more deserving than he, than the others, but lay with them in the communion common misery. He did this in Christ, whom he also appointed from eternity to be the mediator, the head of all chosen, and the foundation of their salvation. And so he decided to give the chosen ones to Christ to be saved and to call and draw them effectively unto Christ's fellowship through his word and spirit. There is an enormous amount of information packed into that one paragraph that the canons of Dort had created. But notice just simply doing an overview of it before the foundation of the world. So our election started before we existed. We were in the mind of God before he created us. From our perspective, we refer to that as eternity past. So in eternity past, before we existed, by sheer grace, according to the free good pleasure of his will. So why are the elect elect? Nothing to do with us as individuals. God does not look down and see something that we have that somebody else does not, and then choose us based on that information. God does not look down the quarters of time to see who's going to choose him, and then those are the people he elects. What God does is he has a special group of people that he has chosen before the foundation of the world. It's from his free good pleasure, and notice back at Article 7 here in Dort. He chose in Christ to salvation a definite number of particular people out of the entire human race, which had fallen by its own fault from its original innocence and sin and ruin. Those chosen were neither better nor more deserving. Notice this unconditional election, the reason why Christ has elected someone to salvation is not because of anything we have in ourselves. There's no quality that the elect have, that the non-elect do not. So they were chosen neither because they were better or more deserving than others, but lay with them in common misery. So we all come from the same lump of common misery. We all are sinners. There's no difference. He did this in Christ, whom he also appointed from eternity to be the mediator, the head of all the chosen, and the foundation of their salvation. He so decided to give the chosen ones to Christ to be saved, and to call and draw them effectively into Christ's fellowship through his word and spirit. 
So unconditional election is God before the foundation of the world, choosing those he wants to save based upon his own good pleasure. No other reason. So understanding the grace of God, understanding the love of God, understanding the freedom that God has in salvation, God is not required to give his grace to anybody. God is not forced to give his grace to anybody. God could have judged all humanity and left them in eternal judgment, and he would have been just for doing so. Today, what we're seeing in our culture is people struggling with the morality of God. They're struggling with the concept that God is just and he's also loving. They're struggling with the fact that God is completely sovereign over a person's salvation. They struggle with the fact that God chooses some and not others. So our culture today is actually calling the morality of God into question. And what we're doing in our culture is we are substituting our own morality for God holding our values higher than God's values and actually saying that we are more moral, we are more sensible, we are more loving and caring than God is. And a perfect example of this, if you have the form in front of you, is from Megan Phelps Roper. She's a social media activist lobbying to overcome divisions and hatred between religions and political divides. Formerly a prominent member of Westboro Baptist Church, whose father was the church's founder, Fred Phelps. This is what she said. She said, this is why I'm not a Christian anymore. There's this passage in Romans 9. I have real trouble with this. I think this is evil. There's this passage in Romans 9 that talks about this analogy as God is a potter and humans as clay in his hands. It paints the picture of God willing to show his wrath and make his power known, endured with much long-suffering vessels of wrath made for destruction. God created some vessels of mercy in whom he loves, and some vessels of wrath made for destruction, made for the express purpose of torturing them in hell for all eternity. God makes you do everything that you do, and he blesses some and he curses others. Why then does God find fault? For who has resisted his will? If God is making you do it, why is he punishing you for it? You can't resist his will. He makes you do it, then he punishes you for it. And the answer to this is you don't get to ask this question. So this is her objection. Taking Romans 9, taking the sovereignty of God, how God forms, molds, shapes, and brings about his creation. She sees God as this moral monster who imposes his vengeance and his torture on his own creation. She takes Romans 9 as God being the puppet master, forcing humanity to do and act as they do, and then turning around and judging them for it. So we're seeing all sorts of misconceptions, misinterpretations, actually putting God on the defense stand, but strawmanning the argument. And what I mean by strawmanning is she's creating a straw man. She's taking Romans 9 and making God look like something that he's not, and then easily knocking him down because of the way she presents him. So one of the questions I always like to ask in challenging people is, if she had brought this objection up to you, how would you have responded? What is she indirectly doing by saying God is evil? 
what she's indirectly doing is saying, I'm right, God, and you're wrong. What she's indirectly doing is saying that my reasoning, my experience, my understanding, my comprehension, and my logic, when I read your word, I find you, God, guilty of all of these things. I find you, God, lacking in compassion and love. I find you, God, a horrible God, and if I were God, I would do better. So we're putting God on the defense stand. That's what this culture has been really good at doing. They're accusing God of being wrong according to their own standards of right and wrong. They're not understanding the nature of God, the nature of sin, and the total depravity of human beings. Today's culture takes humanity as good, with good intentions, not perfect, but overall good, who are influenced by our environment, who are victims of circumstances, and it is God's fault that all this evil and suffering in the world exists. Because if God is good and God is loving, he would get rid of all this evil. So why does he allow all of this evil? Why does evil exist if God is good and loving? All of these objections get placed back onto God. So when we see the doctrine of election, the doctrine that God has chosen some and passed over others, the doctrine of election becomes an important measuring rod, so to speak, for a person's theology. So when the doctrine of election gets spoken, how does a person respond to it? A person will respond biblically to the doctrine of election if they understand the moral supremacy and the holiness of God and the sinfulness and the total depravity of human nature. If a person understands both of those two, election is seen as a means of grace from God not as a means of torture and punishment and favoritism, because there's nothing in us that God has seen that is the reason and the basis for why he has elected some. God doesn't have to elect anybody. But the fact that God has elected some and sent his son to die for us in our place shows the love and the compassion of God in which he did not have to do. So if your heart is right before God, and the Spirit indwells you, you're going to understand these principles more clearly. But if your heart is antagonistic towards God, if you're in your heart, you are fighting against God, you are going to look at Romans chapter 9 the same way Megan Phelps Roper has, in the sense that God is immoral and unjust, and He does, and, um, if He's loving, He would take care of us better. So the doctrine of election kind of is the standard or the measuring rod as to how somebody views the love of God and the depravity of human beings. So the exception or the, reject, uh, the rejection of this doctrine reveals at once where a person stands, the nature and the extent of sin, bondage of the will, the need for God's full grace and our salvation, our hatred and rebellion against him, and the problem in the issue of God having the right to do as he pleases with sinful humanity. God has the full right to do what he wants to do. The doctrine of predestination broken down into two categories. Election, resulting in God saving his own that he has chosen. And reprobation, resulting in God passing over the non-elect. When God passes over somebody, what is he doing? He's leading them to continue 
in their own hatred and rebellion against him. So when God passes over somebody, that person doesn't deserve his love to begin with. When God passes over somebody, he's allowing them to continue in the same rebellious lifestyle that they want. He's not giving them his grace. They don't want his grace. They don't want anything to do with God. So if God passes them over, that's exactly what the individual wants. But then the individual turns around and blames God for not doing this and for not doing that and for not doing this and for not doing that. When in all reality, they don't want anything to do with them to begin with. What they want God to be is kind of a cosmic Santa Claus where he gives them what they want and he allows them to continue in their sin. And God, because of his holiness, and God, because of his purity and his supremacy, can't do that. He can't look down on sinful humanity and cater to their sinful needs. Predestination's only foundation, the reason why anybody is predestined, is because the sovereignty of God has chosen it to be. God does not owe anybody anything. Romans 9.21 Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. God is the creator. God created us upright and perfect. We rebelled against him. We are now all in the lump of sinful human rebellion against God. Out of that lump of clay, he can choose to take out of that sinful lump and restore somebody for an honorable use, or he can choose out of that sinful lump of clay to take some of that clay out for dishonorable use. We are all fallen sinners in Adam. Out of this lump, God chooses to save some and choose and has chosen to let the rest continue in their sinful, God-hating rebellion unto judgment. That's where the individual's choices ultimately lead. It's because they're choosing this. The elect receive God's grace, which is undeserved. We don't deserve God's grace. We don't have the right, the right to demand that God bless us. That's why it's grace. It's free. It's undeserved. So the elect receive this. But the reprobate receives God's justice, which is deserved. The elect receive God's grace. That's undeserved. But the reprobate receive his justice, which is deserved. Does humanity deserve justice? Yes. Is God perfectly just in reprobating some of humanity? Yes, he could have reprobated all of us and been perfectly just. He didn't have to. But he did, in the sense to save some. God does not have to save anybody. So what is meant by unconditional election? God's choice in salvation is based upon his good pleasure alone and nothing he finds in us. Romans 9, 15, and 16, For he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it then depends on not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Because if it depended on human will or exertion, nobody would choose him, nobody would be saved. That's why God has to give us his grace. God does not simply look down the quarters of time to see what we will do and then react to that. 
who do not know exactly what God bases his choice on for his elect, but we know for sure it is nothing within us. Ephesians 1.5 He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. That's what scripture tells us. People are elect according to the purpose of his will. So on what basis does God elect some? God elects some on the basis of his will, not through the means of foreseen faith, not through the means of what we do in the future. Rather, it's based purely upon the will of God. God does not see something in a particular individual, like an act of faith, because no human being can do that, no human being will do that. So he doesn't foresee that because it wouldn't exist. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 teaches that for by grace you have been saved through faith. Notice grace comes before faith. Salvation is grace through faith. Salvation is not faith alone. We need God's grace before we have faith. And it continues to say, this is not of your doing. It is the gift of God. So grace is a gift. Faith is a gift. Salvation, all three, are gifts from God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. It's not a result of a foreseen action that some human being chooses to take as opposed to another human being not taken. The final act of salvation what salvation rests upon is not anything we do for God, but completely 100% what God has done for us. Which means, there isn't any bragging room here. There isn't any room for pride here. In no way should we think that we are saved, and others are not, because we made a choice they didn't. That's not the basis. The basis is God's grace. Who God gives his grace to results in faith, results in that choice. But outside of saving grace, there would be no faith. No human being can conjure this up on their own. So we need God's grace and he gives it to his elect. Second Timothy 1.9, referring to God, said, Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So it's all God. So if we look at the Canons of Dort, rejection number four. Canons of Dort says we reject those who teach that in election to faith, a prerequisite condition is that man should rightly use the light of nature, be upright, unassuming, humble, and disposed to eternal life, as though election depend to some extent on these factors. These are good factors to have. We want to be upright, unassuming, and humble. But that doesn't earn our salvation. That doesn't keep our salvation. Those factors are what a Christian does after they've been saved. They are not what bring us into the kingdom. 
person doesn't come to their senses by their own reasoning and by their own abilities and one day just stand up and says, I repent. If anybody ever stands up and repents for their sin, it is because God has broken them down by his grace. He has reached into their mind and shown them their sin. They grieve because of their sin. They start to hate that sin. They turn from their sinful nature and their sinful ways to Christ in repentance. The reason a person does that is because God gives them the grace to do that. So the Armenian objection that what the canons of Dort are refuting is what's known as conditional election. God decrees based upon what he foresees. Conditional election is God decrees based upon what he foresees. Many people recoil at the Reformed doctrine of predestination. To them it does three things. First, it robs humanity of any free will choice. Second, it makes God look harsh and vindictive because he does not save everybody. And third, it contradicts the fact that God desires all people to repent and yet only chooses some for salvation. So let's take a look at the first one here. It robs humanity of any free will choice. That's not true. God gives every human being the choice to choose him or not. And because of our bondage into sin and the nature of our will, we always choose against God. God is not forcing an individual to sin, and God does not force an individual to believe in him. Second objection, it makes God look harsh and vindictive because he does not save everybody. This goes back again to Megan Phelps Roper's objection against God. The reality is God doesn't have to save anybody. He's not vindictive. He's just. People take the wrath of God and the judgment of God and make him look vindictive. They project this onto God. When he actually he's being just for the sin that is before him. Nobody who sees people who harms children standing before a judge, nobody claims that that judge is being unjust. Sin has consequences. Judgment must take place. Nobody questions the judge in a murder trial or when somebody's standing before the judge who killed somebody because they were drunk in their car. Nobody says that the judge is being unjust. Same thing with humanity. God is not unjust for judging his creation because they rebelled against him. Third objection. It contradicts the fact that God desires all to repent and yet only chooses some for salvation. So it is true that in the general call, the gospel goes out to all people. He requires all people everywhere to repent. That's true. But out of all the people in the world, he has chosen some. He does not tell us why this is the case, but the Bible clearly teaches this is the case. And because this is the case, God has left this to his own secret will that he has not revealed to us as to why. This tension point really frustrates Christians and non-Christians alike, because in one sense, the Bible is going out to all people, requiring all people be saved, that requiring all people repent. That God does not love the death of anybody, but wants everybody to come to saving knowledge in him. And then at the same time, only chooses some. This is the sticky point. This is the tension point. The Bible teaches both. The Bible teaches God wants all people to repent. But at the same time, the Bible teaches he's only chosen some. 
And because we can't reconcile this, this is where a lot of the frustration, a lot of the anger, a lot of the, the questions come in as to why God says one thing and then has another aspect in what he just brings out some to salvation. We don't know. But we know God is just. We know God is pure. We know God is holy. We know God can't do anything wrong or immoral. So because we don't understand why this is, does not automatically make God evil or unjust. We just don't know why. And we have to let it rest there. If we try to pry beyond this, if we put God on the defense stand and demand that he answer this for us, we are sinning because we are coming before the God. We are coming before God and demanding that he reveal to us his secret will. We are to be humble. We are to take what he has given because what he has given us is sufficient and we simply rest there. So what Arminians deny is not predestination, but what Arminians deny is unconditional predestination. There's a difference. Predestination and unconditional predestination. Arminians hold the conditional predestination, which means our predestination is based upon the fact that God sees foreseen faith in us, and because we have, he sees that foreseen faith, he predestines us. So it kind of puts the cart before the horse. He doesn't predestine us because we're sinners in need of grace and he just chooses us. He predestines us because he sees somebody believe. But the question to this and the objection I would raise to this is if he foresees somebody who's going to believe, why does he predestine them? There's no need. They're coming to him. The reason why God has to predestine people is because they're never going to come to him unless he does predestine them. So it turns predestination on its head. He really doesn't predestine because the person is coming to faith. The reason predestination has to occur is because nobody will choose him unless he does this. There would be no forcing faith. There is no forcing faith. The reason there is faith is because God first gives his grace. He doesn't give saving grace to everybody, just as he left. So in light of Romans 8, 29, According to the Arminian, God foresees those who will choose him. Romans 8.29 For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. The Arminian will use this verse and say, look, there's foreseen faith. Those he foreknew. Where, if you're looking at the verse in context in light of the whole, the reason he predestines somebody is because he foreknows them. These are the elect according to the Reformed position. Those he foreknew before the foundation of the world, he predestines to be conformed to the image of his Son. It's God's choice in choosing the person. So the difference is, is this talking about foresight? Or is this talking about foreordination? Foresight, meaning God foresees who will believe in him or foreordination, where God foresees those he's going to predestine. And I think the latter is true. From the Reformed perspective, for those whom God foreknew, and he's referring to his elect, those he foreknows, who he wants that special relationship with. It's not foresight, it's foreknowledge, based upon his good pleasure. He predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So according to Arminians, God predestines those whom he foreknows will choose him. 
God looks down to the quarters of time to see who will believe and who will not believe. So it actually means that men and women elect themselves and God is reduced to a bystander who responds to their free choice. This is where the Arminian doctrine of unconditional predestination comes into play. Unconditional predestination is God chooses before the foundation of the world. Conditional predestination is based upon foreseen faith. Arminians deny unconditional predestination. Arminians embrace conditional predestination. The fact that God's predestination is based upon foreseen faith. What it boils down to is human beings elect themselves, and God is the bystander. It puts God in a passive role, and humanity in an active role, based upon human free will. Those whom God foresees, who will believe, are the one God's predestines. Those whom God sees and reject are the ones God rejects. Humanity, not God, has the final say in salvation according to Arminianism. This is what the canons of God are speaking against. The fact that God is not passive, he's active. God does not foresee, he foreordains. For, foreordains. Predestination is unconditional, not conditional. So we see the differences here between the two groups. So question. Does Romans 8.29 say what God foresees? Or those whom... God foreknows. Notice the difference. What God foresees is an action. Those whom God foreknows is personal relationship, and there's the difference. So when you look at Romans 8.29, it says, For those whom he foreknew. This is a personal relationship. God is foreseeing, not foreseeing, an individual choice. God is foreordaining individuals that he wants to predestine. So God is not foreseeing an action, according to Romans 8.29. God is foreknowing individuals. So the Arminian interpretation of this turns a verb of foreknowing into an action that he's foreseeing, and that's not what the text is saying. The text is talking about individuals he foreknows not individual actions that he foresees. God did not foresee an action the will the person will take. God foreknows the person he predestines. There's the difference. God is not passively taking notes on what humanity is going to do and then adjusting. Rather, God is the one who's doing the choosing. He's the active agent in salvation. And we see this. Let's look at Romans 8, 28 through 30 in context here. It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Who are the ones that love God? Well, he continues. For those who are called according to his purpose. Notice the calling. The ones who love God are the ones who are called. Called according to his purpose, not foreseen faith. For those he whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, 
in order that he might be the firstborn of many brethren. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. Notice the he, the he, he, he. God is the one who's doing the foreknowing, the predestining, the calling, the justifying, and the glorifying. He is the active one. He's not the passive one sitting back waiting for humanity to say, okay, God, okay, God, and then God responds. So to, to suppose that God's decrees are conditional, based upon foreseen faith, or that they depend on foresight of something that may or may not come to pass, is to suppose that something finite in us is the cause of something that is eternal in God. The created being cannot be the cause of an action that an eternal God needs in order to save somebody. Foreseeing faith cannot be the reason why God saves you. Because nothing can come to pass unless he decrees it to be so. He decrees every one of our actions. While at the same time, we freely choose to do what we want to do. It's called the doctrine of compatibility. The Armenian has placed the person the individual as the final cause and God as the responder. So they put God in a passive role. The question that it really comes down to is, is God sovereign over all things? And the answer is yes, all things. Romans 11.36, from him and through him and to him are all things. The created order is utterly dependent on the providential activity of the Creator for its moment-to-moment -moment existence, meaning if God does not for or um, if God does not decree all things, nothing's going to come to pass. The creation itself does not have the power of existence in itself to ordain anything to come to pass. So everything is from the hand of God. Now He doesn't create evil, but He does ordain evil to come to pass through the hearts and the wills of the individuals who want to do evil. So he works through the heart of the individual. He does not force himself upon the heart of the individual. Humanity is 100% dependent upon God in all things. If God were to limit his own sovereignty over his creation, he would cease from being God because then he would become limited. It would... It would be a change in God from the infinite to the finite. God cannot deny himself. God cannot become anything but what he is, meaning his omnipresence. God is everywhere at once. God cannot limit that. God is all-knowing. God cannot limit his knowledge, otherwise he wouldn't be God. He can't deny himself. God cannot deny his sovereignty. He has to be sovereign over all things or he's not God question that often comes up is, can God make a stone too heavy for him to lift? And the answer is no, because God cannot do anything that is not according to his own nature. He can't deny himself. So summarizing all of this, Westminster Confession states, Although God knows whatsoever may or can come to pass upon all supposed conditions, 
yet he has not decreed anything because he foresaw it as future, or as that which would come to pass upon such conditions. So foreseeing faith in human action is not why God decrees anything. If salvation is by God's grace alone, meaning pure unmerited favor, there is no room at all for works. When it is said that God gives grace to certain persons because he foresees what they will do, that foreseeing is a work that they choose to do. And it's not an action that God foreknows. It's an individual whom he foreknows. The basis of why he predestines some and not others. Thank you for listening to the Training Our Minds podcast by Pastor Ben Bessett. If you enjoyed listening, please follow and share this podcast with others. We appreciate your feedback. So leave a rating on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening from. Thank you, and we'll see you on the next episode.